Our text today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. In 1 Corinthians, one of the issues that Paul confronts is that of his authority. The Corinthians have come to the conclusion that he is just a servant. Here he refers to himself as a steward. They're also convinced that they know better than he does and that they have the right to sit in judgment on him. And if you look at verse number 3, Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by you. Paul sees himself as someone who has been entrusted with the gospel. And what is required of someone who has been given that trust is singular. It's one thing. It's faithfulness, that they be trustworthy, worthy of the trust that has been put in their care. Not eloquent wisdom, not success, simply that they be faithful. And the one who is to judge the steward is the one who in fact entrusted that care to him, and that is God himself. Paul is not being flippant or glib. It's not, as he writes to them, sort of a, you're not the boss of me type of response. But rather, he wants to impress on them that in fact, God has commissioned him to be an apostle and to do this work. And if you look, Paul says he doesn't even judge himself because his judgment in fact might be mistaken. It is the Lord who judges me. The key is faithfulness. That's what I'd like us to consider today for our meditation. And I'd like us to do so in the light of Samson, who isn't normally someone who comes to mind when we think of faithfulness. The story is found in the book of Judges, 14, 15, and 16. During the time that Israel was in the wilderness, certain individuals were appointed to help Moses govern Israel. One particular position was that of judge. And Moses gave instructions regarding the government, you know, because he did not go into the promised land with them. So he said, appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God has given you, and they shall judge the people fairly. When he died and Joshua led the people into Canaan, the land was divided up among the tribes. It was a decentralized form of government. There's no capital, there's no king. Each town settled its own affairs. Unless the issue was too complex, then they would go to a judge. And this person was sort of, uh, not necessarily tribal, sometimes over a number of tribes, but this person would deal with the most difficult cases. We have a whole book about this, the book of Judges. Samson was one of those judges. It's perhaps one of the best known characters of the Old Testament. Familiar to people because of his strength. He's known by both believers and unbelievers alike. In part because of the movies that have been made about him. And the expression, he's someone is as strong as Samson. It's an expression that we used to hear. I haven't heard it lately. He was a remarkable individual. He was one of two people in the Old Testament whose birth was prophesied or foretold. The angel of the Lord told, first of all, Manoah's wife, and then came back and told Manoah and his wife uh, about Samson and about him as an individual in the instructions. He was to be a Nazarite from the womb. So while Manoah's wife was pregnant with him, she could not, in fact, drink wine or any fermented drink. She couldn't eat grapes or raisins, um, could not touch a dead body, could not cut her hair. At the end of the vow, these things, you know, the hair is cut off and sacrifices are made. But Samson, like John the Baptist, was a Nazarite for life. The angel tells uh, Manoah's wife, 
he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This isn't usually what people remember about Samson. Rather, it is Samson as the strongest man ever. I find it interesting that the Bible in itself, the people of God, do not describe him or define him this way. This is how his enemies see him. His enemies focus on his strength. We're told a number of stories about Samson. I think most are probably familiar to you, but they point out to his being unusual, unique, and different. Uh, the first is in Josh, uh, Judges 14, that one day he was traveling and he was attacked by a lion and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. A few verses later, he, is, he attacks 30 Philistines, strips them of their belongings in order to pay off a bet. In Judges 15, he attacked the Philistines and killed a large number of them. Later in that uh, same chapter, he took the jawbone of a donkey and killed a thousand Philistines. And yet we know that for all his amazing feats, he was a man filled with folly. In chapter 14, he wants to marry a Philistine woman, which is clearly contrary to God's law. They are not to intermarry with those who worship false gods. It was, by the way, on the occasion of his wedding that he lost the bet, so he went out and uh, killed 30 Philistines and took their clothing and stuff so he could pay off the bet. Then we're told in, Josh, uh, in Judges 16 that he went to Gaza to spend the night with a prostitute, obviously contrary to God's law. The Philistines surround the city, but he escapes. And then there is Delilah, who was hired by the Philistine to discover Samson's secret. Three times she lied to her. He should have suspected something. Um, there is a strong temptation to say Samson wasn't the smartest man around. It is in spite of God's grace and God's patience that he returns to danger and plays with his own destruction. He had, it seemed, little sense of God's work in his life. But I would say this is my opinion, that the biblical story regarding Samson is much misunderstood in a, in a number of areas. Um, but it boils down to, I think, one basic issue. The basic mistake we make about Samson is we see little connection or no connection between us and Samson. We see him as being so unique, and beyond that, he's Old Testament, so we see little or no connection to us. And part of this is we see him almost as, in modern terms, a superhero, someone who has superhuman strength, who is able to do amazing things. And, and we can't do that, so we're not like Samson. But again, this is not the emphasis of Scripture. I'm convinced of it. Rather, Samson is seen as a type of God's people, born by special providence, consecrated by the Lord from birth, given special gifts, but like Samson, the Israelites ran after pagan women, after pagan gods. We've been hearing this as Guy has read to us from the book of Jeremiah, how that God's people went after false gods. But it isn't just an Old Testament connection. Samson is also an illustration or a type of God's New Testament people. After all, Paul does tell the Corinthians, these things, that is the Old Testament things, happened as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In the New Testament, we have callings as Christians. We come to Christ by faith. We become his. We are set apart. We are consecrated. 
to be consecrated doesn't mean like you're like you've moved up a tier in the level of Christianity that you're just a Christian and if you're consecrated then you're like a super duper Christian not at all either we are God's people or we are not in his foolishness Samson is more like us than we might care to admit I'd like us to consider several things here first of all people are mistaken about the secret of Samson I think this is one of the greatest misconceptions Generally from the movies and our own imagine, uh, imaginations, we think that Samson must have looked like a bodybuilder. Somebody who's at the gym every day, um, just covered with muscles. Um, but I would argue this can't be the case. Because if it was, why are the Philistines trying to figure out his secret? Well, it's pretty obvious if, he, you know, if he's built like a bodybuilder, you would know why he had this strength. The Philistines offer Delilah... 140 pounds of silver to find out his secret. Again, if it were physically evident, they wouldn't have needed to spend the money to find out. The ability to do the things he did was seen as coming from a secret. It wasn't readily apparent. And the explanation is given us time after time. In chapter 14, when a lion came charging at him, then the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. On another occasion, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. When he was bound to be delivered to the Philistines, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The secret of Samson's strength was not muscles. It was, in fact, the spirit of the Lord that came upon him that enabled him to do these things. I would imagine that Samson looked like the average Israelite in his day. That's why the Philistines are so keen to find out how he's able to do these things. It's not self-evident. You couldn't just look at the man and know, oh, well, this, this is the strongest guy you'll ever meet in your life. In the same way, I think we have the Spirit of God and it marks us as different. It isn't self-evident to others that there's something unique about us. People can't merely look at us and say, oh, this, this, this is a special person. This is a person who has the Spirit of God. No, we do have the Spirit of God. The Spirit lives in us. And he enables, enables us to do things beyond our own ability. But more importantly, he enables us, he gives us the strength to use the gifts he has given us to do as we are called, to do the things we are consecrated to do. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Not that we are competent to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. The King James here says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. The secret of Samson's ability is our secret as well. It is the Spirit of God. Secondly, the dangers that Samson faced are the same dangers we face. I don't think it's as obvious to us because we think, well, no one's going to go around chopping off our hair, particularly for those of us who don't have much of it. No, the dangers he faced are the same ones we face. The first is pride. In the times that Delilah questioned Samson, we find him showing off. It's like, do this to me. And then he, he breaks him. And do this to me. And he says, oh, look how strong I am. Look at what I can do. Did he not realize that he was really in danger? No, I, 
I think he thought, even if I am in danger, I'm able to deal with any circumstance that comes my way. He was filled with pride. The second is he was filled with self-sufficiency. He remained in what was clearly a dangerous situation because he believed he could deal with it. His pride caused him to stay and his sense of self-sufficiency made him feel secure. And in this, there is little or no sense of the power of the Spirit. In telling the story of Samson, there is a subtle shift that occurs in chapter 16, uh, in Judges 16. In chapters 14 and 15, in specific situations requiring special ability, we are told the Spirit of God came on Samson in power. But in chapter 16, we don't find this. So the story when he's in Gaza to sleep with a prostitute, the town is surrounded, and in the middle of the night, Samson gets up, tears the city gates, post, bar, and all. He, cu- he, cuts, he pulls them loose and carries them 40 miles to the town or to the hill between Gaza and Hebron. It's an amazing feat, not a word about the Spirit of God coming on him. In each of the three tests with Delilah, he snapped seven green vines as though they were string near a fire. He snapped new ropes as though thread. He pulled the loom in which his hair was braided. In each of these incidents, not a word about the Spirit. So we have to ask ourselves, did the Spirit of God enable Samson in chapter 16 to do the things that he did in chapters 14 and 15? Because the Spirit's not mentioned. Absolutely. Absolutely. His ability came from the Spirit of God. Then why don't we read? Why don't we read in chapter 16, the Spirit of God came on him and he was able to do the things that he did. Um... Well, first of all, I think at this point we should have gotten the picture that whenever Samson does something that is, requires great strength, it is because the Spirit of God came on him. I mean, after three times, you should know. I mean, you should get the picture that this is the way it is. But I think it's also possible that it reflected Samson's thinking, that by the time we get to chapter 16, he feels self-sufficient. He puts his confidence in something else. The Spirit of God is still enabling him. He's still able to do amazing things. But he had no sense that this was the case. In his pride, in his sense of self-sufficiency, Samson had forgotten what was really going on. How could he forget? How could he forget? Surely he must have known, he must have had a sense that the Spirit came on him in an amazing way in the stories in chapters 14 and 15. But I would say he took it for granted in his pride and self-sufficiency. Samson now begins to think, look at what I have done. The third danger that Samson faced that we do as well is he changed his purpose in life and began to live for himself. He was called by God to begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. That was his calling, and he had lost sight of that. He used his strength to avoid capture in certain situations. In one situation created by his lust for a prostitute, he seems to have lost all sense of calling. God delivers him, but there's no repentance. There's no cry for help. 
He simply continues as though everything is fine. But all is not well. And here is the great danger. God does not strike him down. God doesn't say, you are not walking in my ways, you are pursuing your own desires, you are abusing your calling, therefore I am going to withdraw from you. As Gia read to us several weeks ago, uh, the people of Judah, when they go into Egypt, uh, they're called to come back to God. And they're like, you know, when we were worshiping God, things didn't really go well. But when we were worshiping these false gods, things went really well, so we're going to keep doing that. Um, the people of God may, in fact, experience success, a sense of peace and well-being, when not walking in their callings. Then there is Samson's fall. And here again is the great misconception. There is the belief that by cutting off his hair, the shaving of his hair would result in him becoming weak. But this cannot be. Because it wasn't his hair that made him strong. It was the Spirit of God coming on him in an unusual way that allowed him to do the things that he did. Samson thought it was his hair. That's what he tells Delilah. Then you might say, well, Damon, then why is it that when they cut off his hair, it seemed that he had lost his strength? Before I get to that, just remember, he is a Nazarite. And he was living in contrast to the rules, if you wish, the regulations of being a Nazarite. God was gracious. God was patient and long-suffering. He still enabled Samson from time to time to do things. Um, so why did... What happened when his hair was cut? Well, first of all, the visible symbol of his separation is removed. It is his long hair because he's a Nazarite. He's never cut his hair. That it shows him as someone chosen by God, someone who is separated and consecrated to God. The outward reflects the inward. They should have cut his hair a long time ago because the inward was completely messed up a long time before that. But there's something else. I'm convinced that Samson believed it, that his strength was in his hair. He came to believe that my hair makes me strong. And that's not right. It was the Spirit of God coming on him that enabled him to do these things. He came to believe in the representation rather than the reality of the Spirit of God. When he talks to Delilah, I'm not sure that he's thinking clearly. And if that's the case, then why do we listen to what he tells, to Del uh, tells Delilah when he says, if you cut off my hair, I'll be like any other man. It was the Spirit of God all along and he had forgotten. And you know what happens? He is captured, his eyes are gouged out, and he is made to work like an animal. One is reminded of David's words when he heard of the death of Saul, how the mighty have fallen. What a waste, what a tragedy. It's almost unbelievable. But the story is not finished, and neither are our misconceptions. The fourth thing is the restoration of Samson. We're told something in Judges 16.22 that is so obvious that 
we might wonder why is the author telling us this? And we misunderstand what is being said. The hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Well, of course his hair began to grow back. That's what hair does. Even if you shave your head, your hair grows back. But don't misunderstand. His strength was not in his hair. So when his hair begins to grow back, this doesn't mean that he is getting stronger again. What it means is, Samson was returning to a sense of calling. He was repenting and becoming obedient. You might say, well, Damon, where do you get that? Because it seems that his hair growing back, that seems pretty obvious, that's the key to strength. No, no. In most ancient cultures and many modern cultures, prisons were filthy places filled with bugs and lice. It was not unusual that prisoners would shave their heads um, as a means of dealing with the problem of infestation, lice and the like. Samson allows his hair to grow. He's willing to deal with the discomfort of lice and whatever other critters there are walking around in his hair because his hair is a symbol of separation to God. Simply put, Samson repented and it's a wonderful thing. His pride is gone. His sense of self-sufficiency is gone. And his confidence in his hair is gone as well. Let's get to this in a minute. He is a prisoner. He has no eyeballs. He must be led by someone else. But it doesn't lead to bitterness. Rather, we find repentance. And how do we know this? Because of what Samson did at the end of chapter 16. Samson said to the servant who held his hand, that Philistines threw a big feast, and they, they bring him out to make fun of this man who had been such a thorn in their side for so many years. Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Wait a minute, how, how was Samson able to do this? If you've not been following along, which I don't expect you to, I actually skipped a verse. And I think it's a verse that people skip in their minds when they're listening to the story of Samson. Samson prayed to the Lord. O Sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Where did Samson's strength come from? What did he think at this point? It's not his hair. It's not his hair. He knows it comes from the Lord. It's something he had forgotten. It was the Lord who was the source of his strength. Samson could only do what he did because of the power of the Spirit. So I said earlier, I think there's much 
and the story of Samson to teach us. But sometimes I think we distance ourselves and part of the way we do that is we make these characters larger than life and something that we couldn't hope to emulate. Um, So people tend to focus on Samson as a man of great strength. He wasn't. Samson's hair as a source of his strength. It wasn't. Mighty deeds versus the mundane. No. How can Samson be an illustration, a model for us of faithfulness? Well, if you look in Judges 15, verse 20, it says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And then at the end of Judges 16, then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He judged Israel 20 years. This is not what we normally think of when we think of Samson. We don't think of someone who did his work as a judge for 20 years. We think of the spectacular events. We think of the uniqueness of this person and not, in fact, him doing his calling day after day. It should be obvious to us that the model for faithfulness for us is the Creator. The passage that our last hymn was based on is from Lamentations chapter 3. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been burned. The majority of Judah has been taken into captivity. And we have the book of Lamentations, the book of weepings, of sorrows. And this is what the writer says. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The author tells us God is faithful, and great is his faithfulness. One of the problems we have with this, interesting enough, the writer of Lamentations does not, is we think we get to judge God on his faithfulness. So that if he doesn't do what we think he should do, then we see him as not being faithful in our lives. We are not the final judges of God's faithfulness. Instead, we are to look for God's faithfulness in our lives. And the poet finds it. The poet finds it after the capital has been destroyed, Jerusalem, the city of David has been destroyed. We sang Psalm 122 today. That's gone. The temple is gone that Solomon built centuries before. But the poet says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. There are new mercies every day. The author says, his compassions never fail. Every morning, the poet speaks of God's great love. may not be what we want, and it may not be what we expect. But God is faithful. We are to gratefully recognize that in ways that we do not imagine or always understand, 
God's goodness and his wisdom are displayed in our lives. By the way, if you go to Lamentations 3, the passage I just read, the author does something wonderful that's quite subtle. He goes to talking about the Lord, the Lord's compassions, to talking to the Lord. It goes from he to your. We've been talking about faithfulness all this time. Perhaps we need to define it. Faithfulness is doing what is right consistently, even in the mundane and daily tasks of life. Our summer project, by the way, it's upstairs here. Gia's been putting for up, putting it. She put it up there for us. We're listening to a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life by Tish Harrison Warren. It's a wonderful book. It's an audio book, but you can get the hard copy as well. Um, We tend to see certain things as sacred and other things as secular. And the reality is faithfulness is something in which we are to obey God consistently every day in all that we do. It's a wonderful verse in Psalm 85. Love and faithfulness meet each other. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And four Psalms later in Psalm 89, a similar verse. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. You'll notice in both, love and faithfulness are paired. We hear this in Lamentations 3 as well. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's go back to our text in 1 Corinthians 4. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. What it boils down to in our meditation today, that we are to be faithful, consistently, daily, doing what is right. God will be the judge of our faithfulness or lack thereof. Others do not have the right to judge us. We are not to judge ourselves. We are by God's grace to do what is right day by day. And it is God who will judge us. One last thing. Why is it that we seem to drop the ball when it comes to being faithful? Faithfulness. Um, Just some ideas. First of all, it's boring. We call it mundane for a reason. It's just the same thing day after day. And we get bored of doing what is right. As I've said before, we don't seem to get bored of breathing or of eating. Um, but doing what is right just after a while gets really old. But secondly, because like steps, we prefer grand gestures. Instead of doing the right thing day by day, in what might seem to be just boring as all get up. We would rather make these spectacular gestures to show that we are something special. 
And Paul says the one thing that is required of a steward, faithfulness. Not the grand gesture, it's just day by day faithfulness. And I think the third reason why we fall down when it comes to faithfulness, we're not sure God has been faithful to us. Because things haven't turned out the way we think they should have. There's certain things that we have, we have certain expectations, certain things we want, and it hasn't worked out. Um, and to sing, Great is thy faithfulness, almost seems like an act of hypocrisy because we're not sure God has been faithful. Uh, we're not in a position to judge. Okay, God entrusts, He gets to make the judgment. We've not entrusted anything. God is the creator, we're not. And read the book of Lamentations. If these people whose world has been destroyed, if they can say every morning, new mercies, you are faithful. Uh, yeah, let's, let's learn from them. And recognize, while we might want to be like Samson and make these grand gestures and do these spectacular things, kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, it's pretty spectacular. No, let's read the verse that says, he judged Israel for 20 years. He heard court cases for 20 years. The day-to-day obedience. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a culture of celebrity in which people are well known for being well known. That, I think, has come into our thinking we would rather have spectacular moments in our lives rather than the mundane day-by-day, moment-by-moment obedience. And yet if we would look to you for your faithfulness, it is there, moment-by-moment. Every morning there are new mercies. Our lives may not be going the way that we want or that we expected. We may not be getting the things that we want but you are faithful. You always have been. By your grace, as your children, may we be like you, our Father, and be faithful. In the small things, as well as in the big things. The things that no one else sees, as well as the things that are done in front of other people. And above all, may we trust you. As Samson prayed before he destroyed the temple, he looked to you as the source of strength. You are the source of our strength. You enable us to do the things that we do. We just forget so easily. By your spirit, may we meditate on these things in the coming week. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.